7 tonight. Looking forward to uh, working through this passage with you tonight. It's a good reminder again of our position before God because we often had have good intentions. We like to make plans for ourselves. We even like to make plans for God and what He should do. And we want to make sure that our God is taken care of. But then there are times in our lives where God brings us to our knees by showing us that He doesn't need us to provide for Him. He's not like the gods of this world or where He has to be cared for. He, as we saw last time, is a God who is self-sufficient, independent, and unmoved by humans. David, David wants to take initiative by building a house for God and God saying, listen, I'm happy to live in a tent at this point. I've been doing that for a century. And, and if I'm going to, to dwell among you, then I'm going to be doing the, the initiative. I'm going to take the initiative in building my own house. Uh, in fact, David, I'm going to build a house for you. And God's saying very loudly to David that, again, he's not like the other gods. He is the builder. He is the initiator of all that has value. And I think God at times teaches us the same lesson that we saw last time, that you know, we try to build our business, or we try to build this church, or, or we try to build our financial portfolio, and we think that we are the initiator and builder of all that's good and profitable, but then God comes along like he does with David, and he brings us to our knees. And he usually does it in one of two ways, through our circumstances or by speaking to us. And then we're reminded that, that we're not even sovereign, not that just that we're not sovereign over the entire universe, but we're not even sovereign over our little universe, our little world. And God reminds us of our place in relation to, to him, and so we have a choice at that point. We either drown out his claim of supremacy over us with our busyness or we humbly sit at his feet. And so let's read our text to see what response David has to the voice of God when God humbles him, reminds him that he's the one who has sovereign control over all things. He is the builder and initiator of all that is good. How is David going to respond? Is he going to drown out the voice of God with his busyness or is he going to sit at the feet of God and listen to him? Our text begins in verse 18. So follow along in your Bible as I read. This is the word of God. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your own word, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people 
and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and the awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people, Israel, as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken according to your servant and his house, confirm it forever, and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. The proper response to God's mercy ought to be our humility. God's mercy results or ought to result in our humility. And this is David's response. When he recognizes that he's not the one making plans for God, but that God's the one making plans for him, it brings him to his knees. He, he sits down before God. We see David's humility in his posture. First part of verse 18 his humility expressed in, in his posture. And what is it there in verse 18? He sits down. This is a posture of submission. Like we picture Mary when Jesus comes to dine at her house in Luke 10. Well, uh, I'm sorry, Martha. Mary's busy working and Martha's sitting at... Uh, other way around. Martha's busy working. I had it right the first time. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And David apparently is sitting before the Ark of the Covenant the, where the, the symbol of God's presence. And so I think this is an expression of David's humility. He's standing up making all these plans. Nathan, go tell God what I want to do for him. I want to build him a house. And God says, no, I'm actually going to build a house for you, a dynasty. And so I think this is an expression of humility. The second reason I think that David responds with humility is because his humility is expressed in his prose or his words, the way that he talks about God. This ought to be true of us. It ought to be, our humility ought to be expressed in our posture and also in our prose. If we were to describe David's overall response from the time that he hears about the truth that God is going to come and, and, and uh, build a house for him, the one word that we could use to describe David is humility. Let me show you why, from his words, we know that David responds with humility. But first, let me remind you what humility is. I like Mahaney's definition from his book, Humility. It, he says it's honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So God is holy, we are sinful, and re properly recognizing ourselves in light of who he is. That's humility. Now let me show you from the text that David sees himself before God properly. He sees God as holy and himself as sinful or, or as finite. Look at verse 19. Notice how David describes himself. He says, um, in the middle of the verse, For you have spoken also of the house of your servant. In verse 20, 
the end of the verse, for you know your servant. Verse 21. The end of the verse, for you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. Verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord, Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. Verse 26. The middle of the verse, and may the house of your servant David be established. 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer. Verse 28. The end of the verse says, You have promised this good thing to your servant. Verse 29. May it please you to bless the house of your servant. And then the end of the verse. May the house of your servant be blessed forever. You get the point? David describes himself not as I, but as your servant. In fact, when he talks about the people of Israel in verses 23 and 24, he calls them your people. And it's interesting that David only uses the first person personal pronoun, I, to refer to himself only once, and that's in the very first words that come out of his mouth. And what are the first words that come out of his mouth? Verse 18. Who am I? Right? A question of humility. He's basically saying, in light of who you God, you are God, who am I? And then, ten times, your servant, your servant, your servant. Why would you do something like this to someone who just came to serve you? David's amazed at God's care for him. David's amazed at God's choice of him. God has poured out upon David mercy upon mercy. Not only has David witnessed God be merciful to him all the way up until this point but God has promised future grace future mercy to him through his family line you see that in verse 19 and yet this was insignificant in your eyes O Lord God for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future so if it wasn't enough for God for you to deliver me all the way up until this point that was kind of insignificant for you. That wasn't enough mercy for me. In addition to that, you've also promised mercy for me for the distant future and for my family. So that now this has become the custom of man. Do you see that in the text at the end of verse 19? The custom of man, just literally this is the law of man. In other words, this is destiny. This is going to happen. This is going to come to pass. God, you have promised it. It will happen. So it's not like I'm just making a wish that, you know, I've seen you work before and I'm kind of wishing that you do some good things for me in the future. No, you've already promised it, God. And so this is the custom of man. This is going to happen. And so David is effectively rendered speechless. Look at verse 20. Again, what more can David say to you? What more can I say? For you know your servant. And this is the idea of, of God choosing David. You know me in an intimate way. For the sake of your word, verse 21, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. In God's good pleasure, he has chosen to reveal this future mercy to David. And so we see David's humility expressed in his posture, in his prose, and then thirdly, we see it expressed in his praise. In verses 22 through 24. And David praises God for, for, um, for three things. First, he praises God for his greatness in verse 22.
For this reason you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. So David's response, God says, you're not going to build a house for me. Not, I'm not going to accept your plans for me. I'm going to make plans for you. David's response is humility. What can I say? What can I do? Well, his first thought after he kind of gets over the speechlessness is, God, you are great. There is none like you. We sang that earlier in, in the D.A. Carson song in this rebel world. You know, all the nations are like dust on the scales in comparison to God. That comes from Isaiah, and, and there is none like you. I mean, have you taken time to consider how great your God is recently? I mean, compared to the gods of this world, what God is there like our God? I mean, do you ever consider what the gods of this world are like? Do you, do you ever consider what kind of treasures that they have to offer to their worshipers? Do you ever consider how empty the worship is of those gods? And then taking time to reflect on that in contrast to the great privilege that you and I have to serve the living Creator. And this is why our response ought to be one of humility, expressing to God our praise to Him. Listen to Moses in Exodus 15, following the, the parting of the Red Sea. He says, Who is like Thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like Thee? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Answer, no one. I mean, who can do what we just witnessed happened? I mean, who takes a whole nation out from underneath the oppression of the most powerful empire to that point in the world, to that point in history? Who takes a whole nation out from underneath their oppression and destroys them, humiliates them in the Red Sea? Who is like you, God? Isaiah 45.5 I am the Lord, there is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. God saying to Judah, who is unsure about who they should trust. You know, maybe we should put our trust in the nations. Maybe Assyria. They're kind of strong. Maybe we put our trust in them. And God's saying, trust in me. Okay, don't look over to there and all these other crutches that you can have in the world. Do you realize who you have? There's no God like me, he says. So we ought to humbly acknowledge that before God, and when we do, it ought to come out in praise to God. I think both in speech and in song. Secondly, David praises God for his choice. David praises God for his choice in verse 23. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations, and their God. So God is this transcendent being. He's far above. He's unique. He's independent. He's self-sufficient. And yet, for some reason, God has chosen to choose... God, God has chosen to make the nation like Israel a part of His plan. And, and so, most notably, David reflects back on God's choice of Israel and the clear expression of that in the deliverance of, of them from the oppression of, of Egypt, the Exodus. And in a similar way, we are redeemed by God through Christ, that Christ came to save sinners. Christ came to die for his church. And therefore, he owns us. This is good. 
We're reminded of God's choice of us, and as a result, it helps us to see our proper position before God. That, like we sang this morning, before I loved Him, He loved me. Before I sought Him, before I found Him, God was the one who was finding me, right? And we know that because of Romans 5, 8, that says, while we were yet sinners, or you could change that word to any other description of what we were like before we came to Christ, right? While we were yet enemies, while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were yet estranged from God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was God who chose us, and this is a reason for us to give praise to God as we reflect on our proper position before Him. Thirdly, we praise God for His nearness, as David did. Praise God for His nearness in verse 24. He says, For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and now, and you, O Lord, have become their God. God is unique. God has chosen to be a part of it, to make us a part of His program. And, and then thirdly here, we see that God is near. And all these truths are worthy of, of our praise to God. And David's saying, the fact that we can be a part of a nation where, where you are our God, where you have chosen to live among us, where you have chosen not to abandon us fin- finally, where you have promised a dynasty. I mean, this is a great privilege. And saying, oh Lord, you have become their God, Israel's God, our God. So praise God for his greatness. There is none like him. Praise God for his choice. Our place in his family doesn't add anything to his greatness, and yet he still chooses us anyway. And then praise God for his nearness. He will never abandon us. But David doesn't stop there with this posture and his prose and his praise. He expresses his faith in what he will do. He shows humility. Fourthly, in his prayer, humility expressed in our prayer, verses 25 through 29. Humility expressed in our prayer. One of the greatest expressions of humility, I would suggest to you, is our regular, private, thoughtful prayers to God. And I think how much you pray in secret is a good indicator of your faith. Take stock of how much you pray in secret, and I think that's going to give you a good indication of how much you trust God. And so David is humble in this way. He, he recognizes his reliance upon God through prayer. And David prays for, for three things. First, he prays for God to confirm his promise. Prays for God to confirm his promise, verse 25 and then 28 and 29. David was confident in God's unilateral promise. God had already said, I'm going to make a house for you. He didn't say, David, we need to enter into agreement. So I'm going to do this as long as you do this. Now, God does that in other cases. He makes those kinds of bilateral agreements like he does with Moses, the law of Moses. You obey the law, you'll be blessed. You disobey the law, you'll be cursed. Right? Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Okay, but, but this one here is what, what, what theologians would call a unilateral process, uh, promise. That is one-sided. God says he's going to do it no matter what. It's like the, it's like the flood or the, um, the, um, the Noahic promise, right? God says, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky so that it reminds me not to destroy the world ever again with a flood. And so 
No matter how evil we become as a world, we're not going to be destroyed by a flood because God has made a unilateral promise. David recognizes that God has made a unilateral pro promise with regard to this dynasty. God says, I will build a house for you. God's going to bring it to pass. And yet, notice what David does here in verse 25. Even though he already knows God's going to do it, it's unilateral, it's going to happen. Notice what he does, verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it and do as you have spoken. Verse 28. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth. You have promised a good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. With your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Here, David prays for something that's already guaranteed. We might look at that as a lack of faith on David's part. Well, maybe he didn't fully believe and he wanted, he was doing like Gideon did in Judges 6 where he was asking for another sign, another fleece. And if God, you can just confirm it. I, I know you said. That's not what's going on here at all. David actually recognizes a, a greater principle I think we all recognize and that is that even when God has promised to do something, we still pray for it to happen. We ought to pray for what God has already promised to take place. This is the one, of, one of the ways that God brings His promises to pass. And it's not improper or insulting to God for us to pray for something that He's already promised He would do. If I promise my kids a trip to an amusement park, it actually shows their confidence in my promise, in my character, that they ask regularly. I mean, we tend to look at that as a sign of distrust. Well, I told you we were going to go, so why are you asking me again? We, we tend to see it as a sign of distrust, but actually it's a sign of trust. It's saying, I believe in you enough to follow through on it. I haven't seen it happen yet. That's why I'm asking. You see, if I was untrustworthy, they wouldn't even ask. I would make a promise. Like, oh, well, Dad always makes promises. He never follows through on them. I'm not even going to ask because I know he's not going to follow through. I mean, I mean, you know people like this, right? People who just make it a habit of lying and then they promise to do something. Hey, I'm going to come over and help you on a house project that, that you've been wanting to do. I mean, do you call them up and say, hey, what day can, we, can you come over? No, because they've promised before and they, 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 they just do this all the time, right? And I think our perpetual asking for something that God has already said He would do is actually a sign of faith. That we believe that God is trustworthy. God, you promised something was happened. It hasn't happened yet. I'm, I'm waiting on your time. I'm not trying to be impatient, but, but God, I pray that this will come to pass. Now, now that I've made that claim, can you think of any examples of things that we're commanded to pray for that God has already promised will take place, but haven't taken place yet. Can you think of any examples? What is it? Okay. So where are we commanded to pray like that? How about in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next line? Your kingdom come. Jesus is saying to the disciples, you pray... 
for God's kingdom to come to the earth. Now, is there any chance that God's kingdom will not come to the earth? Any chance? No chance at all. God has promised it. He's stamped it. It's, it's final. It will happen. He's written it down. And yet Jesus says, pray for something that I've already promised will happen. Or when, when John prays at the end of Revelation, right? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Any chance that Jesus won't come? No, He's coming. He's already promised to come. We already have the record of, the, the prophetic record of His coming. He's going to touch His feet down on the Mount of Olives, so why pray for Him to come? And the answer is that God brings about His purposes, even His unilateral promises, through our praying. So we pray. We show our confidence, our faith in God. We show that God is trustworthy, that we believe that God is trustworthy when we pray, even for the things that God has already promised. Does that make sense? All right. Pray for God to confirm His promise. I think that's good way to express our faith, like David. Secondly, pray for God to be glorified in fulfilling His promise. Verse 26, so that your name may be magnified or glorified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. May the house of your servant David be established before you. Here's what David wants to see. And when God comes and He follows through on His promise, this building of a house for David, that millions will say, Praise to our God for accomplishing his purpose. See, David's not all about building a name for himself. He humbly recognizes what God is doing here and says, I want you to be magnified. And, and that's a wise way to pray. That, that as you make requests, connect them to things that God loves. Right? Connect, connect them to God's purposes. So God, the reason we want your kingdom to come, certainly we want it to come because... We hate the injustice that we feel now and we, we experience now. We hate the groan of creation. We long for the day when everything will be restored. But, but ultimately, God, bring about your kingdom so that you'll be glorified, so that the whole earth will be full of your glory, so that from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord will be praised. Won't that bring you much glory, God, to, to establish your kingdom? So do it, we pray. Thirdly, pray with confidence. Verse 27. David prays with confidence. Because God has made this promise, David says at the end of verse 27, Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. His confidence springs from the reality of God's promise and the certainty of God's word. Because God has said he will do it, and because God is the faithful God, David can pray this prayer and know that it's going to be answered. Hey, don't, don't we all want our prayers to be answered? Well, pray for things that God has already promised will take place. And you'll be one of the, the, the means by which God brings that prayer about. David's confidence sprung from God's faithfulness. God, he had seen God work before. He had seen God make promises before and follow through on them. And it, it actually causes us to grow in our faith and be able to confidently come before God because God's promise is more powerful than any threat of evil. I mean, if you think about how many times this specific promise was threatened. I mean, think of how many times it was on the brink of completely um, being impossible. Right? You had 
you had Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar plundered Jerusalem and killed Zedekiah's family. The dynasty of David was hanging by a thread. There's still one king left, and he survived. He continued the line of David. He'd be one of the great, great, great grandfathers of Jesus himself. And then you have the death of Jesus, which we may look at something like that and say, well, the threat of David's throne being perpetuated forever and ever is hanging by a thread because Jesus is dead, but three days later he comes back to life. Or we could think of the threat of the Nazis trying to wipe out the Jewish race more recently in our history. God has promises connected to that, and yet God has been faithful. He follows through on his promise. So let's think about how we can relate this to ourselves. First, he's so great. There's none like God. No one can compare to his greatness, his sovereignty, his commitment to his people. No one can compare to his power to fulfill his promises. There is none like God. Have you, have you found that to be true? He's so great. What's the next line you think? I'm so small. David properly sees himself in light of who God is. Right? He says, who am I? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer to God? Have you ever just felt so tiny in the presence of God? And if you have, then that's humility. I mean, that's where you ought to be. That's where we all ought to be. The problem is we, we are constantly wanting to be the sovereign of our own lives. We're wanting to put God into a box and say, God, here's what, what I need you to do, Okay? You stay over here until I'm ready for you. And I put them up on a shelf. We'll go about our business. We can take care of this. You know, I can take care of my job. I can take care of my family. And then when something difficult comes, okay, now I'm ready for you. And God's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You're not going to make plans for me. I'm good on my own, okay? I'll make the plans for you. And it's at that point we say, wow, I mean, what, what am I doing in this plan at all? How could you possibly use me? Who am I? Your servant. I mean, why would you choose to do this, God? He's so great, and I'm so small. I'm not going to let you guess the next one, because I didn't continue the song there. But it is, humility is properly recognizing this distinction that he's so great, and I'm so small. The proper response of a believer to the revealed will of God is humility. It's praise. It's prayer. And I think when we recognize our rightful place before God, that's when God really can work. I mean, do you see how quickly things changed from the beginning of chapter 7 to the end of chapter 7? David's in a position, effectively standing up, making plans, kind of got the blueprints all laid out. Here's what we're going to do to take care of God. By the end of the chapter... Right, he's sitting at the feet of God saying, Who am I? Being made aware of God's plans for him. And if we think that we're in control of our own lives, then, then we actually take control from God. We, we sit in the driver's seat, so to speak, and tell God what we want to do. But, but then sometimes God comes along, praise God that he does this, that, that he speaks to us. 
or we see him act in a powerful way or a humbling way and, and we are brought to our knees. And our proper response at a time like this ought to be that we humbly acknowledge that he is the source and the sustenance for all that we have and all that we are. So we gladly get out of the driver's seat, we sit at his feet, and we find out what he wants for us. We're amazed at his grace, we praise him for it, we pray for his purposes to be accomplished, and then we get to work submitting ourselves to his plans. I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing about David, because we might like to think, well, you know, David kind of got out of the driver's seat, and he let go and let God, and just God did the rest, and he just kind of floated on a, um, a lazy river all the way to, to heaven. That's not what happened at all, Right? Humility and submission is recognizing who's in control and then submitting myself underneath it. And, and that means that I'm going to submit myself to his plan. So what is it, God, that you're doing? And what does David spend the rest of his life trying to do since God says, you can't build my house for me? He's preparing for it, right? Your son's going to do it. So if you're going to do it, God, if you, if you are going to have this temple built for you, then I'm going to bring all the materials that are necessary. I'm going to... I'm going to drive out all the Canaanites from the land so that we have a secure and unified nation. Listen to um, Eugene Peterson's commentary on this. I found this to be helpful. It's a little bit longer of a quotation, but, but try to stick with me as I read it. What we do not do for God is often more critical than what we, in fact, do. He goes on to talk about the fact that God is at the center of all things and, and we're, um, we need to, to recognize our position in light of him. Especially when things are going well. It's hard not to imagine that we're at the center of our own lives. That we are the source of all that is good. We are the end of all things. At least, if not the end of all things, at least the end of our own little world. Kind of... Our world revolves around us and is for us and is sourced by us. And he says it's at this time that we need to sit down. It's at this time when the noise of our work quiets down, we realize that this is God's world. We're always worried about doing so little, but sometimes the most godly thing we can do is nothing. Now, this is not a call to be lazy or to give up, but rather, in our quietness, we, need, we are neither stoic nor slothful. For David, doing nothing is being in the presence of God. It's talking to God. It's le- inaction here is actually an action, isn't it? He sits at the feet of God. David gets out of the driver's seat and allows God to initiate. And when he listens to God, he becomes as active as ever, working for the sake of God. You see, the danger for us is not to become inactive when we realize this is not our world, but the danger is a great one if we think this is our world. That we will get so caught up in our plans for God that we actually forget about God. When God speaks, when God expresses his unilateral promise, David is humble and his first response is, who am I? This is not the only time David was humbled before God. Psalm 8 says, When I gaze into the night skies and see the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? 
I mean, when, when you consider the size of the universe, who is puny little I, right? Who am I in comparison to God? David serves as an example of how we ought to view ourselves before God. Why was I made to hear his voice and enter Wilder's room when thousands made the wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Or another song we sing, How Can It Be That God Would Save a Soul Like Me? Or And Can It Be That I Should Gain an interest in the Savior's love. Or John's epistle, See what great love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And such we are. Sometimes God lovingly puts us in our place, shows us who we are in light of Him, and our response ought to be one of humility in our posture, in the way that we speak, in our praise, and in our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reminder again of your sovereign power over us, the fact that you have great plans for us, that your plans will be accomplished and will not fail. And, and yet we have to think in light of your great plans, who are we in relationship to you? I mean, in the big scheme of things, why would you call us to be a part of your family? What, what made us so special? And the answer really is you chose us on the basis of your own, your own choice, your own free will. There's nothing good that you saw in us. We were your enemies. There was no life that you saw in us. We were dead. There was no alliance that you saw in us. We were your enemies. And yet for some reason you caused us to hear your voice and to respond with faith and repentance. And Lord, so all of our lives are belong to you. We give them to you in service. We hold nothing back. Thank you for reminding us of our position before you. And, and may you cause us to, to see this distinction, this creator-creature distinction more and more as we... Um, our, our eyes are unveiled as we look at your word. May we move to the next level of glory as, as we behold in the, the word your truth. Lord, change us tonight. Remind us, strengthen us in our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.